God, what a powerful picture that song paints of your love. No matter what we do, no matter how far we try to run away from you, no matter how hard we try to hide from you, you will do anything, anything to bring us back. And it's because of your overwhelming, awe-inspiring love. And we thank you for that love this morning. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. We're going to dive right into our communion soul care question this morning. It is, is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold resentment toward, or disregard? Again, these questions are just kicking my butt. Uh, like Every week we come, I'm like, this has to be the week where I finally I have something taken care of. No, I dealt with some of this this week. I'm sure that many of you did as well, as we were all together with our loving families uh, at Thanksgiving. Now, I'm not saying that I'm scared of anyone in my family or that I necessarily dislike them, but there were definitely moments where I was like, oh, please, just stop talking, right? Uh, there, are, there are so many reasons that we can come up with as to why we enter into a state, one of these states, with another person, right? And, that, and those states can be fluctuating, right? It's not like you always dislike that person or you always hold resentment toward that person. That can change. And basically, what is laid out for us in the Bible is that we are supposed to be relational people. We are supposed to be loving, compassionate people. When these enter our lives, when these enter our headspace, we are no longer living the, the, the Christ-like, perfect, relational life that Jesus wants us to live. So, uh, the three primary reasons that we end up experiencing this, I think, uh, one, it starts with a, a point of comparison. We frankly think that we're better than other people. And again, we've dealt with this before, uh, but this is something that like, keeps coming up for me. Now, um, not saying that I'm necessarily better than other people, but when uh, we were together with Riley's friends, Riley's friends like from grade school, uh, some of her best friends, we, we did a, like a Friendsgiving thing this, uh, last Saturday. It was a lot of fun. But there's one guy in the group, one of the husbands who like married into this group, who just is generally, he, he says a lot of biting comments. Uh, at one point, he, at, at dinner, again, he's, he's kind of a louder guy too, so he, he makes sure that his point is heard. At one point, he said, yeah, I'm not friends with any of you. If I wouldn't, if, if Brienne hadn't married me, I wouldn't even know any of you. How can I call you my friend? And everybody just kind of sat there in silence like, Ooh, all right. Well, uh, I, guess, I guess you can take it that way. Uh, and instead of stepping up and, and kind of reinforcing, like, hey, yeah, we are friends. Like, even if we aren't best friends, we still, like, have this common interest in this group and we care about each other. I, I chose to, to sit back and just kind of later on when everybody's talking about, like, wow, I can't believe Jacob said that, I, well, admittedly, sat there and, and chipped in. I was like, yeah, I can't believe that he would do that. So again, am I saying like I'm better than Jacob? But no. But in that, in that situation, I was saying like, oh man, like I would never do that, right? Uh, and that, that, breaks, that breaks the possibility of a deep relationship. So uh, another reason that we fall, it, fall into one of these categories is that we just generally dislike someone's personality. Uh, in, 
this is where extroverts and introverts, like, again, we're supposed to be equally yoked, right, uh, in our relationships, but sometimes introverts, like, you can't stand us extroverts, right? You're like, dude, just leave me alone. If you try and touch me one more time, if you try and, like, just stop trying to talk to me. I gave you my one answer, and that's it. Leave me alone. And extroverts, we get annoyed when the introverts don't talk back. We're like, I've asked you 47 questions, and all you've said is, yeah, right? <laughs> we, we, we become annoyed with each other. That's, that's just a fact of life. Uh, God made us the way that we are, and we're not going to necessarily be on even par with everybody at all times. However, Jesus calls us to be compassionate and loving and continue to work on those relationships. Imagine if Jesus, with his 12 disciples, had said, you know, this Simon Peter guy, I, like, I, he doesn't think before he speaks. Uh, he just, he's kind of wild. I don't know if we can go on with this guy, right? Imagine what that would have done to the story of the Bible. Uh, it, but instead, no, Jesus, he chooses to grow Peter. He chooses to, to show his love and, again, continue to, to be a partner with him in that relationship. Uh, and so being compassionate rather than being judgmental. Uh, and finally, an, another reason we enter into one of these states is because we feel that we've been wronged. Uh, a lot of this, it can be very real pain. It can be pain from, uh, from a family relationship that's been broken. Uh, it could be a friendship that lasted decades and something just flipped one day. It could be a, a marriage that's been broken. The trust is lost. Uh, and, we, and we hold resentment. Uh, or we, we disown that relationship. And we step back and we choose to say, I'm just, I'm just done with it. I've been hurt too badly. There's no, there's no chance of ever fixing this. Again, Jesus says that it can be. Jesus says that we, we're called, again, to show love, to continue to grow in our relationships, to be relational people like he was. So my challenge for you this week is to spend the entire week in prayer. Who's that person? Who's that person in your life where you either have been talking in a way that you, you feel better than someone, or you've been, um, <laughs> you've been struggling with that particular person who every time you, you talk to somebody else about them, you're like, yeah, they just rub me the wrong way. They really, like, they grind my gears. Or who's that, that person? What's that relationship that you've been, all you, all you can feel now is that pain, uh, that, that broken trust, that broken heart as a result of being in this relationship. Spend the entire week praying about and for that relationship. Ask God for the opportunity to mend it, even if that's a relationship that's been broken for decades, even if that's a fresh wound. No matter where that brokenness lies, all of these on this, on this list, fear, dislike, disown, criticize, holding resentment, disregard, all of these bring broken relationships that drive us not only further away from each other, but further away from God. Spend the entire week praying about the opportunity to mend this relationship. And then I'm going to actually push this one into December. During December, at any point, from the 1st to the 31st, find an opportunity to confront this relationship. To have a 
good conversation, even if the other side isn't willing to have it. Maybe, maybe you can't have that conversation. Maybe write a letter. Maybe write an email that, again, doesn't, like, it's not so pointed that, you, you know, you're, you're just making the relationship worse. Offer forgiveness if it's due. Ask for forgiveness if that's where you're at. Uh, but again, spend, spend the, this week praying about it and spend the month of December finding the opportunity uh, to, to seek a resolve in this relationship. We're going to have about 30 seconds to start thinking about this and start praying about it. Uh, once that's done, the worship team will begin singing a song and you can move to either the two stations in the back or the two stations in the front to receive communion today. Our servers are going to come receive the morning offering this morning, and as they do, uh, we've got some announcements for you. They have been sent to you through the links. The links is our email that gets sent out every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock that you can sign up for if you go to the church website, southfieldchurch.com, scroll all the way to the bottom, and you see that blue check mark all the way at the right. Click that, enter your email address. It's that simple. You can also go out to the Welcome Center and get signed up for those uh, if you'd like. In the links today, you'll see that we still have... Uh, today's Bible teaching, you know, the, the, the permalinks, the links that are always there. Bible teaching, uh, the link to the Old Testament study, where we're at uh, in that study, uh, along with some other things. We still have the opportunity for you to sign up to help us make coffee on Sunday morning. If you're trying to find a serve here at Southfield and you're looking for that entry-level thing, uh, that's a great opportunity for you to, to get signed up for. So you can, again, either get signed up through the links or at the, at the welcome desk this morning. We would love to have you become a part of that team. Another big announcement uh, is with Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve this year, we're doing it at 3 o'clock, but we're having two services there at 3 o'clock. This is going to be really cool. In here at 3 o'clock, we will have our normal, like, you know, silent night, contemplative, real fire service, okay? So that's the quiet, dark, you know, meaningful, like, service in here. Then we go over into the gym, and it's going to be a completely different, amazing, meaningful experience. That is our kid-friendly, like, kind of go-crazy experience. I'm reading, this, I'm reading this announcement this morning here in our, in our bulletin, and I'm kind of switching. Last week I said I'm for sure going to the real fire service, but now I'm seeing family photo booth, uh, snacks and hot chocolate, glow sticks. Uh, you can sit at rows or tables. Like th- it just, it, this seems amazing. So you do not have to have kids in order to go to that service. Thankfully, uh, because I for sure don't have kids, and I think that I'm going to go over to that one now. Like I'm going to be, I might bounce back and forth. I might be a real disruption on Christmas Eve. Uh, but those are both going to be at three o'clock, and it's going to be really, really cool. So again. Uh, we know coming off of Thanksgiving, you just spent time with family. Maybe that's the opportunity to follow up uh, with some family that doesn't have a church home. <coughs> Invite them. Christmas Eve, 3 o'clock, for either one of those experiences. We are off for Revive tonight, taking the night off, uh, but we're back into the full swing of things this Wednesday with Refuge and next Sunday with Revive. We have a lot of cool stuff coming up, including Arctic Blast. Arctic Blast registration is open for both junior high and high school. They are two different weeks. High school is the last week of January, and Refuge is going to be going uh, the first week of February. Again, that's our camp, our winter retreat up in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. We want to make sure that you get signed up for that, uh, because if you're getting a hoodie or if you, you, know, you want a seat on the bus, anything like that, uh, we need to know. So make sure you're getting signed up for that. Finally, without further ado, uh, we've had a big week. We've had Thanksgiving, 
We've had Black Friday. I hope, I mean, no, I don't see any trample marks on any faces, so it looks like we all stayed safe. That's good. Uh, we had Small Business Saturday. Uh, tomorrow is Cyber Monday, and today, today, I bet you you didn't know that there was something for today. Today's Substitute Sunday. Yes, we have an amazing substitute, though. This isn't like, you know, again, normally when you hear substitute teacher, you're like, yeah, we can do whatever we want. No, yeah, like, we have a really good sub today. Uh, John Beaker is going to be coming to present the word to us this morning uh, in, place of, in place of Dennis. And again, I'm sure he's got a jam-packed uh, message for us. So if you would, join me in welcoming John. <laughs> substitute, huh? Substitute. I don't know that I've ever been called a substitute before. So now I have to pick one, three, three o'clock on Christmas Eve. I, I can't go to both. No. So I have to pick one. This is going to require a lot of thought, I think, and, and attention. Oh, oh, well, I guess there goes the choosing. Okay. Well, and I think I may have demonstrated already my first point. Uh, many of you know, uh, my name is John Beaker. I'm one of the overseers here at Southfield, and uh, I have a brother. I have a brother named Dave, and if you've, uh, you may have met him before. He is local. He lives in Aurora. And I got to see him uh, this last week. We went to my mom and dad's, and we had Thanksgiving dinner together, and uh, it was great. It was a great time. It, was always good. it is always good to see him. My brother Dave is a wise man. He's a wise man. You see, when I was a child back in the, the 70s and the 80s, I was, they, they had a name for children such as me. I was what they called the strong-willed child. I know, I know, that's hard to believe, but it's true. It's true. And as such, uh, my parents made sure that I was well acquainted with something called the rod of discipline. Uh, it was tough. And this is where my brother Dave enters the story. As I said, Dave is a wise man because unlike his older brother, he actually learned by watching my mistakes and he didn't repeat them. I suppose there are times when it does pay off to be the younger sibling, uh, so I'm told. The wisest people, the wisest people, like my brother Dave, learn from the examples and the mistakes of others. They don't have to reproduce them. Sometimes the lessons learned show us the path to take, and other times they reveal the path that we should avoid. Today, we will be investigating the wilderness wandering of the children of Israel. It serves as a case study on the ways of both wisdom and foolishness. The Israelites experienced victories that we should emulate, and they fell into pitfalls that we need to avoid. The good news for us is that if we are wise, like Dave, if we're wise, we can read about their experiences and learn how we can avoid their mistakes and replicate their victories. The wilderness experiences of our lives provide us with tremendous opportunities for growth. God places his people in the wilderness because only in that place can certain issues be confronted and certain lessons be mastered. The wilderness does not provide a lot of distractions. It is often a lonely place. And in the loneliness, we're a lot more apt to 
pay attention to God. Throughout the Bible, many important people had time in the wilderness, including Moses, David, Elijah, John the Baptist, and yes, even Jesus. Israel's wilderness experience lasted 40 years, 40 years. And we're going to look at it in less than 40 minutes. In that time, we will look at seven life lessons that the children of Israel confronted in the wilderness. Lessons that we can learn from if we choose to be wise. Now, the route that the people of Israel were supposed to take was really a simple one. If you look at the screen, you'll see that the simplest, most logical way for them to take it was called the way of the sea. The trip from where they were in Egypt was referred to as Goshen to where they're going is about 200 miles. And since we know that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, the most logical route looks simple. The way of the sea makes great sense. It's a scenic route running along the Mediterranean Sea that really would have been a relatively short trip that would only have taken them a matter of weeks. But there are two problems with this straight line. First is it passes through the Sinai Peninsula, which is not a pleasant place. The second is that the way of the sea, uh, referred to in Isaiah 9-1, also has another name. It is an international trade route known as the Way of the Philistines. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the Philistines and the Israelites uh, did not turn out to be best of friends. They were bitter enemies, bitter enemies. The most famous Philistine was Goliath, of course, the giant that David took on. Now in Exodus chapter 13, God reveals a different path to Moses and as well as giving him the reason why he wants him to take this path. It says, when Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said, if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Thus the Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. There were, to be sure, more obvious choices for getting to Canaan, but God did not choose those. Instead, he took them on the way of the wilderness, dead south. And the road took them to a significant place, one that we read about last week, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, where God gave the people the Ten Commandments and the law. Rather than taking two weeks, this particular shortcut would take about a year. From there, they took a road called Mount Sire Road, or the road to Kadesh Barnea. It went from the tip of the Sinai Peninsula to Canaan. Now, we know how long it would take them, or it should have taken them, uh, to travel this road under normal conditions. We read about it in, at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, where we find out that normally it only takes 11 days to travel from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, going by the way of Mount Sire. This particular 11-day trip would take Israel 39 years to accomplish because of some of the foolish, disobedient choices that the Israelites made on their journey. As they go on their way, one of the things that we learn is that God himself led them. 
We see it in Exodus chapter 13. The text tells us that the Lord went ahead of them, the Israelites. He went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud, and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night. And the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire from its place in front of the people. This leads us to wilderness lesson number one. Lesson number one is a lesson about God. In the wilderness, God is not in a hurry. God's primary concern is not speed. Ours usually is. We want to get there. Let's go. Let's get to the promised land. What's taking so long? God knew that where the people were going was not as important as who the people were becoming. He knew that possessing a land flowing with milk and honey was not as important as having a heart that possessed God's values. Life with God is not about speed and destination as much as it is about process and progress. If it took 40 years for them to develop the right heart, then by golly, 40 years it would take. And it sure did. Every bit of 40 years. God's point is this. It's not where we're going that matters as much as who we are becoming. Not destination, but process. God would rather have us take longer to get somewhere and be sure that we arrive as the right people. We have taken many trips uh, with my kids to Wisconsin, Michigan, to various places uh, around the country. And there's a, there was a recurring refrain in, in days past that came from the backseat of the car. You may be familiar with it. It's a question. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? How much longer until we get there? And in a very real sense, we do the same thing with God. We constantly ask him, are we there yet questions? Have we arrived? Have we gotten to the place where we think it is that we need to go? We're constantly asking, are we there yet questions? When will I be done with school? Am I there yet? When will I be a grown-up? Am I there yet? Have I arrived? When will I fall in love? Am I there yet? When will I finally get out of college? Am I there yet? When will I move out? Which ironically is a question that 50-year-olds ask as well. (laughs) Am I there yet? Have I gotten there? When will I get married? Am I there yet? When will I find the perfect job? Am I there yet? Have I arrived? And then, of course, when will I retire? Am I there yet? When will I die? Am I there yet? Remember, God is more concerned with who we are becoming than how quickly we are getting to what we perceive as our desired destination. And we have to remember, God has a better view of the trip than we do. We learn in 2 Peter 3.8 that to, to God... A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He is not bound by time and space in the same way that we are. And because this is true, we know God is not in a hurry. And believe it or not, there are times when his slowness actually works to our advantage. 
In Psalm 103, we read that, that God made, his way, made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. When it comes to getting angry, I want God to be slow. Don't you? I want God to be slow when it comes to getting angry. His slowness in that regard, as we perceive it, actually works in our favor. So, have we arrived? Are we there yet? Have we gotten there? Well, no. But we're getting there. Lesson number one is a lesson about God. In the wilderness, God is not in a hurry. Lesson number two is a lesson about remembering. And it sounds obvious, but we need to hear it. Reminders help us remember. They do. We need to be intentional about remembering who God is and what he's done for us. Think about all that the people of Israel have been through to this point in the story. They've been delivered from Pharaoh. They've been delivered from slavery and his army. They've walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. They saw God's power through plagues and a pillar of fire that was always there to lead them. It would seem that this manifestation of God's presence and power would have a lasting and indelible impression on his people. It would seem natural that the impact of these events would be with them forever. But notice how quickly they forget. We read in Exodus 15, Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. Three days. As the hideous orc from Lord of the Rings might have put it, we haven't had any clean water for three stinking days. Three days. Three days. No water. Just three days. And in just three days, after witnessing God's miraculous parting of the Red Sea on their behalf, they are discouraged. They grumble. And they even, if you can imagine this, they even get angry. The Bible uses a word to describe their action and attitude. The Bible says they murmured. They murmured. It only took three days to forget all that God had done for them. You'd think that after all they saw, that their faith would be unshakable. This time, from the back seat of the car, they're not asking, are we there yet? They're whining. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I want to get out. Can't we just go back? Can we turn around and go back? Well, they, like us, suffer from short-term spiritual memory loss. All throughout the Old Testament, God's people are encouraged to remember what God has done for them. And one of the practical, physical ways that they were to do this was to set up a pile of stones as a visible sign to remember what God had done for them. In Joshua chapter 4, God miraculously parts yet another body of water in front of the people. And he has them do something so that they won't forget. We pick up the story in Joshua chapter 4. The text says, So Joshua called the twelve men that he had chosen, one from each of the tribes of Israel. He told them, Go into the middle of the Jordan in front of the ark of the Lord your God. 
Each of you must pick up one stone and carry it on your shoulder, 12 stones in all, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. We will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them. They remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. God wanted them to remember, and he wants us to remember too. Now, maybe we won't literally create a pile of rocks, although if you were to dig up one of the islands in a parking lot, you would find rocks that we gathered and wrote prayers on uh, years ago. Maybe it won't be that specifically, uh, but we do need to remember God's goodness and his faithfulness to us. We need markers to remind us. Something that will help us to mark the moment, to remember the way that we felt when God did something special in our lives. Some people keep a list of answered prayers, prayers that they prayed that one after the other, God showed up, God answered. Maybe you'll choose to keep a Thanksgiving journal, reasons to be thankful to God each day. Maybe we need to hold on to a particular receipt or bill stub at a time when it seemed like the money wouldn't be there, but God provided anyway. Take a picture. Keep an album of photos. You may have noticed we have a few around here. If you come into the foyer uh, where the chairs are, there are a number of pictures of different uh, people and events that are significant in the life of Southfield. Forgetting is easy. It's easy. Remembering takes work, and it's worth it. Three days. That's all it took, and they forgot. And in the forgetting, they grumbled, which leads us to lesson number three. Lesson number three is a lesson on people. Grumbling is contagious. Unfortunately, we, like Israel, are prone to grumble. It's human nature. But we need to fight against this temptation. When the people of Israel come to Marah, the water is bitter. They complain. They forget God's mighty acts, and they focused only on their thirst. We pick up the story in Exodus chapter 16. The key word to listen for in this text. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. So Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. What was the key word in that text? 
You heard it. Grumble. Grumbling. The New Living Translation uses the word complained, but, but grumbling is more accurate. Grumbling is a sin. There's no question about it. Grumbling causes dissension. It creates division and it stimulates dissatisfaction. As believers in Jesus, we need to fight to maintain the unity that Christ died to give us, his church. Grumbling is a sin that God wants purged from our lives. Now this calls for some self-evaluation. We need to stop and take a look at our lives because it's possible that we have fallen into a pattern of grumbling and complaining. It's both helpful and necessary for growing Christ followers to occasionally do a heart check and ask the tough question, am I grateful? I mean, we just came off of a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. Am I characterized by being a grateful person or am I characterized by grumbling? If you're really courageous, you might even ask a close friend for their perspective. Well, growing out of this grumbling tendency, we learn lesson number four. Lesson number four is a lesson on perspective. Discontentment, which of course grows out of grumbling, distorts our perspective, changes it. Discontentment distorts our perspective and it twists our view of reality. In Exodus 16, we see how the entire perspective of the Israelites has been just warped, changed. And in their discontentment, they begin to rewrite history. Discontentment can distort our perspective and play with our minds. We begin to maximize how bad our present condition is, and we begin to look with rose-colored glasses at the past or at how things are for someone else. That's just human nature. Exodus 16.3 gives the, uh, this discontentment voice from the people. They say, oh, if only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. <clears throat> there we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you, Moses, have, <clears throat> have brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. Think for a moment about where they were, what they were doing in Egypt. What was their job? They were slaves. They didn't sit around eating fondue all day when they were in Egypt. That's not the way that it was. They were in forced servitude. They were beaten down. They were miserable. They watched their brutal oppressors murder their children. That's what Egypt was. But now, in a state of discontentment about their present situation, they're caused to see the past in a distorted light. That's what discontentment does. Discontentment turns us into liars. We misremember, and it causes us to forget the amazing things that God has done. Huge mistake. Huge. They want to return to Egypt? Oh, for the good old days, they say. The good old days were awful. The good days, the real good days, were the days when God showed up in force and in power to liberate them. But no one stood up to say that. They forgot. And unfortunately, so do we. That leads us to lesson number five. Lesson number five is a lesson on provision. 
daily bread arrives, well, daily. Amid all of the grumbling, God works one of the greatest miracles of the Bible. He throws down bread from heaven, manna, which is literally translated, what is it? I mean, you, you can imagine the people going to pick it up. But what is this? I don't know. What is it? I, manna, I guess we'll call it, what is it? Let me give you a little more info on what this manna was like. Uh, in Exodus 16, we learn, when the dew evaporated, a flaky substance, as fine as frost, blanketed the ground. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? They asked each other. They had no idea what it was. And this is the first time that we see any mention of a breakfast cereal in the Bible. (laughs) Frosted flakes. They took one bite and they said, they're great! (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry. It was just sitting there. It had to be said. Had to be said. Well, sadly, truly sadly, after a short time, they even complained about this provision from God. There are two lessons on provision here. The first is that God knows our needs and He provides it. The second, He provides just enough. Jesus called it our daily bread. Just what we need here today. Manna collection came with this stipulation. Collect just enough for today, for one day. Those who stored it up opened up the container to find the next day that it was rotten and full of maggots. Except on one day, the day before the Sabbath, where God caused the manna that they collected to be good for two days. And even in that, you see the miracle of God's presence. The lesson of manna is not a mystery. We learn about it in Deuteronomy 8.3. Yes, he, God, humbled you by letting you go hungry. That happened. And then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Hmm, Those are familiar words. They might show up in the New Testament. Keep going. Look at verse 4. For all those 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out and your feet didn't blister or swell. God was teaching his people to depend on him one day at a time. They couldn't rely on their own strength, their own wisdom, or their own resources In the wilderness, they learned that everything that they needed was in the hands of God and that he gladly and willingly supplies his children with their daily bread, with what they need. We're tempted, like some of they were, some of them were, to get anxious and to worry about where the supply will come from. On the other extreme, we get greedy trying to hoard enough just in case God doesn't come through. But maybe the worst thing is when we are literally holding the manna in our hands, a gift straight from God, and we reject this great gift, demanding something else instead, something different. Lesson six is a lesson about presence. God is with us always, 
We can choose to walk in the real and life-changing presence of God, or we can cling to lifeless idols. We can choose lifeless idols instead of the gift, like the Israelites did, throwing out the manna and choosing something else. The wilderness wanderers ask a question that goes through all of our minds at one point or another. Is the Lord among us or not? In Exodus 17, we read, Moses named the place Massa, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing. Because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? Now, after all they were through, again, the Exodus, the Red Sea, the manna, it just makes you scratch your head. The question that they are, are asking is not, was he there, but is he here? There's a huge difference. Maybe you can point to a time in your life when you can say without question, God was there. He showed up. He provided. He was there. But in the same breath, you're concerned by asking, is he here today? Will he be there tomorrow? Well, nowhere is this more evident than in Exodus 32. God leads the people to Mount Sinai. Now, they're not hungry at this point because God's already taken care of that need. And they're not thirsty either because God has taken care of that need as well. All they need to do is wait. Just wait. They have enough faith to just wait. Ah, but waiting seems to bring out the worst in this bunch. Read Exodus 32, verse 1. It says, When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. Look at this passage. This fellow? You see the language here? There's kind of got a little distancing thing going on here. This guy, you know, what's his name? Staff guy, threw it down, became a snake, all that stuff. Moses, yeah, him. Where is he? He's gone. We don't know. So the people cry out to Moses' brother, Aaron, make us gods, little g and plural. Wow who will go before us. They don't want to wait. They're not interested in God's timing. They just want to get out of the wilderness. Let's get to the milk and honey place. Let's just get there. They're in a rush to get there. People are unwilling to wait 40 days. They want to control God rather than be led by Him. They prefer to have a golden calf that they can manipulate rather than a living God that they have to obey. A lot of us are like that. With an idol, a golden calf, we get our way. With God, we must listen and follow him. Amazingly, Aaron gives in. Of course, when he's confronted by Moses about why he did this, he gives the human family answer, the one he learned from Father Adam and Mother Eve. He held out his finger and said with every ounce of his being, they did it! Those people! They made me do it. Yet another blamer in a long line of blamers. His follow-up excuse is priceless. We read it in Exodus 32, verse 24. Aaron says, so I told them, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. When they brought it to me, I simply threw it in the fire, and out comes the calf. He admits it. 
He had the people give him the gold. He threw it in the fire and bam, out comes the calf. You can hear him saying it. It's unbelievable, Moses. You should have been here. You wouldn't have believed it if you, if you would have seen it yourself. I've never seen anything like it. In goes gold, out comes cow. Amazing. Incredible. Once again, we see this human tendency to blame other people. And to blur the facts rather than to just fess up and take responsibility for wrongdoing. God had not left his people. He was there. But their failure to wait on him caused them to fall into a great and terrible sin. The final lesson, lesson seven, is a lesson about power. The power of fear and the power of faith. Numbers 13 is a critical juncture in the wilderness wandering. The people are about to enter the promised land, but before they do, Moses sends out 12 spies to check out the land, see how it is. Here's the report that they bring back. The report to Moses. Uh, We entered the land that you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, imagine that, exactly the way that God said it would be. Here's the kind of fruit that it produces. It's amazing. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Well, we've got some good news, and we've got some bad news. The good news, lots of milk, lots of honey. The bad news, apparently the milk has a growth hormone additive because the people are very, very large. They're huge, much larger than the average Israelite. Ten of them. Ten spies give a discouraging report, ten of the twelve, but two give a dissenting report. Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land. We can certainly conquer it. We can do it. Let's go. Let's make this happen. Unfortunately, the people chose to follow the erroneous majority opinion. They refuse to enter the land. Fear is a powerful thing. It robs us of the potential of walking with God to new and exciting places. Faith leads us on an exciting journey of daily trust in God. In in Numbers 13, verses 32 and 33, there's a, a poignant image. People say, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. They thought exactly the same thing. This sentence reveals the power of fear. Not only did the ten men feel like grasshoppers with no strength, but the people of Israel quickly caught this grasshopper complex as well. Many of these people had never fully recovered from the slave mentality that they had learned in in their bondage in Egypt. As far back as they could remember, they had been small, insignificant, powerless, No hopes, no dreams, just fear. Sadly, this generation would never see themselves as anything but grasshoppers. God saw them differently. He had a different image of them. He had better plans for them. But they simply would not allow hope to fill their hearts ever again. Every one of us has a choice. Fear or faith. Will I keep on thinking of myself as a grasshopper, a nobody, a nothing? Or will I have faith? You see, faith is a game changer. 
With faith, I still may see myself as a grasshopper, but who I am is not as important as who God is and what he wants me to do. This weekend, as your turkey continues to digest, as this day we call Thanksgiving kind of fades into the rearview mirror of our minds, let's take a few moments to reflect. Am I more prone toward gratitude or grumbling? Are others made hopeful by my words or do I cast doubt and so discontentment? Is God's presence a distant memory or a hope for a future and a present reality? Are my life decisions ruled by fear or by faith? Am I willing to wait in my wilderness, not rush it, not throw my gold in the fire and craft a God of my own choosing? Will I wait knowing that the wilderness is less about destination and more about destiny, becoming who God wants me to be? Let's talk to him. God, no matter how they felt, the Israelite people were not alone. You were with them. You made your presence so obvious in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, they they couldn't help but see it. We may not have a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, but God, you have given us your spirit. You guide us with your spirit. Help us to know you are with us. And God, I pray that you would help us to be wise people, to learn from these lessons, to become the people that you want us to be in the here and now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Enjoy your Sunday.